Matthew chapter 14. There's really not enough time to uh, say everything that uh, would be good to be said. And uh, that's in regards to the text that we'll be dealing with today, as well as other thoughts that uh, are running through my mind. Let me say this, that um, Community Baptist Church uh, is a church that honors mothers. We want to be a church that honors mothers. The message today is not what would typically be called a Mother's Day message, though we will be talking about a mother in this passage. Um, And we heard about a mother in the last hour as well. But I appreciate mothers, and I I love the new life that God is bringing into the church through young mothers. And I I just am encouraged by you young mothers, and I pray for you. And I I pray for you because I feel for you and the task that you have as mothers. There are mothers in this room who have been through that stage of life, and you're on the other side. And, uh, and so, but you're still mothers, aren't you? The older ones, you're still mothers. And I desire that in this church, that there will be that motherly instinct that continues, not just because you have little ones at home, but because there are others in the context of the church that you can care for and influence as an older mother. Mothers in Israel, as we say, you know. And so we want that kind of influence within the church. And, uh, just let me say one other thing, and it's it's this, that uh, God created us in His image. You as mothers are created in the image of God. God is not referred to as a mother, but that nurturing, caring instinct that you have as a mother, you know where that comes from? It comes straight from your Creator. You're created in His image. It would be a very strange thing for you to do it, but... It is possible for a mother to forget her young ones. But it doesn't even touch the realm of possibility for God to forget His own. Now that's a motherly instinct if you want to call it that, but God doesn't pattern His care after you. You should pattern your care after Him. And so He is the example that we follow. And mothers, you find that example in Him just as we as fathers do as well. Matthew chapter 14. This is not an easy passage to preach from. One of the ways that I know that is because I dialed into sermonaudio.com and found once you got past chapter 2, there were no messages on sermon audio. Nobody preached on this uh, passage uh, that I could find. You're going to have to bear with the thoughts that have come to this preacher's mind. I trust the Holy Spirit is guiding. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them, and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it, be, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. 
Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Verse 13 says, when Jesus heard it, I'm a, it's a bit difficult to know exactly the connection here, but I'm taking that he heard what had happened to John the Baptist, or perhaps it was that he heard uh, Herod's thoughts, something. The information came to him. I, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Well, while Jesus was rejected by his hometown, as we saw at the end of chapter 13, his hometown was Nazareth, his popularity was spreading and there was increased attention, even from government leaders like Herod, provoking inquiry. Who is he? Herod hadn't seen him. In fact, Herod will not see him until the trial of Jesus in Luke chapter 23. I want to read this, this passage in Luke 23 at the outset here. Luke 23, verses 6 through 12, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. So all this time, probably um, our the portion that we're looking at this morning is probably a year and a half to two years into Jesus' ministry. This is a year or so later, and Herod is just now... Seeing Jesus, then he questioned him with many words and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. And so Matthew and Mark record Herod's conclusion to the inquiry, who is this man that, he, that Herod was hearing about? He heard about all the great things that he was doing. Who is this man? And his conclusion was that it was John risen from the dead. Now Luke adds that he wanted to see him in Luke chapter 9. Luke doesn't say much about this event. He just simply says, uh, record Herod's words that he beheaded him and that he wanted to see him. Then later Luke records that he saw him in chapter 23 at the trial. And so Luke briefly mentions what Matthew and Mark expand upon, the details of the death of John the Baptist. So why does Matthew and Mark, in fact, Mark gives more detail than Matthew, but why does Matthew and Mark, and that's in Mark chapter 6, and we'll be maybe flipping over there a time or two this morning, why do they record the details surrounding the death of John the Baptist? And that, that's the question that occupied my mind. This is not... If it were simply to record the death of John the Baptist, that could have been done very succinctly, just like Luke did. So, so why all of these details? Well, certainly, there is a memorial, I think, of sorts to this greatest of the prophets, as Matthew has already said, that Jesus said there wasn't a greater that's been born of women than John the Baptist. And we know that he was a burning and shining light. John 5 and verse 35 tells us that, at least for a while. Kind of like a shooting star. For a while, he shone brightly. But the light of the world is Jesus. And you remember John has said, he, John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so his work was done. And so the gospel writers are sort of memorializing the 
impact of John the Baptist, the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. But John's ministry was not about himself. It was about the one that he pointed to. It was about the light of the world. It was about Jesus Christ. And so there's a sense in which his death was a prelude to the death of the one that he pointed to. Flip over to chapter 17 and verses 10 through 13. This is after the when Jesus has come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the, do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. And this phrase, likewise, the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus connects his own sufferings with the suffering of John the Baptist. The treatment of John the Baptist is a similar treatment to which Jesus was going to to receive. And so Jesus connects the dots, at least in that way. And I'll just note this in passing. John's supposed resurrection, at least in Herod's mind, I believe also serves as a pre, as a prelude. I mean, Herod supposed that John had risen from the dead. He was seeing Jesus as the resurrected John. It isn't that a prelude to what exactly would happen. Jesus would, in fact, be raised from the dead. But while all of those things are true, why the details? Why the details of Herod and Herodias? And in fact, some gory details in relationship to John's death. Well, first of all, it's very clear from the text that Matthew, as well as Mark, are explaining what they explain, why Herod, uh, to, to, to tell us why Herod concluded that Jesus was John risen from the dead. Verse 3 says, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison and so forth. And so you have the the rest of these verses from verse 3 down through verse 11 is an explanation as to why Herod was perplexed as he was and concluding what he was concluding about John being raised from the dead. And as I hope to demonstrate to you, this was the effect of a guilty conscience. But why give the details? Especially... In regards to Herodias, perhaps the more significant answer, and this is what I'm seeing in this passage, we are given an insight by way of this extreme historical event of the reaction of depraved, unrepentant hearts who were confronted with their sin. This is a reaction. What we're reading in verses 3 through 11 is a reaction to John the Baptist. A reaction, as John prayed, a reaction to the message of a bold prophet pointing out the sin. And these unrepentant hearts responding as we see that they respond. And while no one here today may be able to relate experientially, To this extreme example, I don't know that we have any Herods or Herodiases here today. At least there's no exact parallel in our lives. I believe that we can relate to the effects of an unrepentant heart. Or at least even in a believing heart, there can be at least for a time a spirit of unrepentance under the convicting ministry of biblical preaching. Let me suggest to you that if you are under biblical preaching, whether it be in this church or in some other context, it is an expression of God's love and long suffering when he confronts you and calls you to repentance. 
And it is spiritually dangerous to refuse the message of a God-called and God-sent preacher. Well, our text says, at the time, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch. Now, let's look for a moment at the personalities in this account. And I hope this doesn't bore you too much. I think it's helpful to understand what's going on here. But Herod was like a a family name originating with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a ruthless leader appointed by Rome to govern Judea. There are lots of Herods in the Bible. And you might read at that that time Herod the Tetrarch and think, well, we've already run into a Herod in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2, there was a Herod that, you remember, he is the one that sent out the decree to have all the children, the male babies under two, put to death. Well, that was Herod the Great. Now, that Herod died in 4 B.C. And at his death, his kingdom was divided among his sons. And I'm not going to go into all the details except to say this. Herod Antipas, as he is called, is the one in our text. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. And he's probably been ruling about 32 years at this point of this passage. He was made Tetrarch. That word Tetrarch just simply means the ruler of a quarter. And by the way, to help you out, I I see Joyce looking at the back of the bulletin there. Sorry about that. I do see what's going on out here. But uh, it is helpful to see on the back of the bulletin. You might not want to do it now, but you can if you want to. It's helpful. I put that there for you to see the diagram of what's going on as far as the genealogy of the Herods here and even the personalities in this story. But Herod Antipas was made Tetrarch. His region included Galilee, which was the primary place of Jesus' ministry, and Perea, which was the primary place of John's ministry. John was popular. And Jesus was gaining in popularity. And it was this popularity among the Jews that the Herods, and here in this case Herod Antipas, viewed as a threat. This is one of the reasons why John the Baptist was in prison wasn't the only reason, as we'll see in our text, but it was one of the reasons. And it was a reason, I believe, at least one of the reasons why Herod was concerned about this popular figure that he thought was John risen from the dead, but in fact was Jesus. Who is this man? Remember, some said he was a prophet. Some said he was Elijah. And Herod came to the conclusion that it was John risen from the dead. Well, Herod Antipas married the daughter of Aretas. You think, well, Aretas, why do you bring that name up? Well, for one, it's it's true. He was the king of Petraea, which was an Arabian uh, in, the, in the region of Arabia. But his name also shows up in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 32. It's interesting. He's in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 32. And I'm not going to go there and say much about or anything about that. But Antipas had a half-brother. His name was Philip who was married to Herodias. Philip shows up in verse 3 of our text. And so he was married to Herodias, the daughter of another half-brother, which makes Herodias his niece. And this Herodias was sister to Agrippa. Well, there's more than one Agrippa in the Scriptures, and so that gets confusing as well. Well, this was Agrippa the first, And that Agrippa is the one you find in Acts chapter 12. The one that, remember, swallowed a gnat, was it? Or, you know, God killed him because of his egotism and so forth. Well, there was another Agrippa, Agrippa II. And that's later on. That's the one Paul stood before. That's that, that's not this Agrippa. Are you confused? Okay. At some point, that's why I put that on the back of the bulletin. All right. At some point, Antipas visited Philip in Rome. And as the story goes, and I'm abbreviating the story a great deal, Herodias and Antipas divorced their spouses to eventually marry. And so Herod, Antipas, marries his brother's wife, and his wife is also his niece. 
Okay, so not only is Herodias the niece of her first husband, Herodias is the niece of her second husband. There's a lot of garbage going on here. A lot of ungodliness. By the way, the Jews were greatly disturbed by this. And I might add this, that that Herod was not a Jew. They were Jews by conversion, but not by lineage. Herod the Great was appointed. In fact, he was a descendant of Edom. He was an Edomite. Esau. I believe, if I remember right, he married a Samaritan. Think about that. And yet they gained their notoriety and popularity among the Jews because Herod built Herod's temple. He was responsible for a lot of construction. And so was Herod Antipas. But they were always vying for the attention of the Jews. Which was interesting why he would even engage in this marriage which set him at odds with the Jews on that issue. Antipas was not as ruthless as Herod the Great, and yet he was cautious of rivals to his rule, as all the Herods were, all the leaders of that day. He was a politician, and he sought to gain the favor of the, peace, of the people. Which is one reason, as I said already, that John was, well, he was in prison, but it was one reason why he wasn't immediately put to death. You saw in verse 5, and although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So, so he, he, he wanted to continue to gain some sort of favor with the people. But Herodias, on the other hand, was different. She was ruthless. She was dominating, domineering. She was like Jezebel with Ahab. And then there's John the Baptist, a preacher of repentance. He was confrontational. And with the boldness of the spirit of Elijah, he called out Herod's sin. And it cost him his life. And I am firmly convinced that he knew what it was going to cost him when he called out his sin. He was a faithful man of God, a faithful preacher of God. At the very cost of his life, he did what he knew he had to do as a God-called, God-sent preacher. What an example for us today. This then is the context in which Matthew gives this flashback, as it's called, verses, in verses 3 through 11, demonstrating the horrible effects of unrepentance, especially in unregenerate hearts. Herod and Herodias were unregenerate, so especially in unregenerate hearts. But as I say, I think there is still, since we still carry the remnants of our flesh, we can still see some of this, even in regenerate hearts. And it stands as a warning to us. Confronted by a faithful preacher of God's truth, how do we respond? It's evident that Herod and Herodias felt the sting of John's message. And their response reveals their hearts. The first thing I want you to see is that an unrepentant heart is plagued by a guilty Conscience. This was mentioned in the first hour. A guilty conscience. This is especially seen in Herod, but I believe it was also in Herodias as well. Herod was reacting under the burden of a conscience plagued by his sin. When he said this to his servants, he said it to his servants. This is something that was eating at him. And he speaks to his servants. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. And it was almost as if to say, what does this mean for me? Has he come back for revenge? What's going to happen here? What's, how's he going to unleash these powers ultimately in relationship to me? It seems like there was a fear in him generated by this guilty conscience. See, Herod knew that John spoke the truth. He knew that his marriage to Herodias was wrong. John had shined the law of God upon his sin in verse 4 because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. John likely would have referred to Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's Nakedness. And then in 
Leviticus chapter chapter 20 and is it verse 21? If a man takes his brother's wife, it's an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And it's interesting that Herod and Herodias had no children. Herodias' daughter was from the first marriage from Philip. Because John had said to him, this was not a one and done saying. The tense of the verb there tells us this, this was a repeated message of John. And some have concluded that, as, as we see from Mark's account, as, as Herod seemed to, to visit John and, and want to hear from him, that John didn't back off of his message. And he kept saying it to him. You're wrong, Herod. It's not lawful for you to have her. That's Philip's wife. That's not your, that's interesting too. The text is verse three. Put him to death in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Not his ex-wife. But it's almost as if the scripture is saying it was still properly Philip's wife. You took her unlawfully. And heaven does not recognize this. What you did was illegal, was wrong. And heaven doesn't sanction that marriage. You're in sin. You're in adultery. For Mark's account, it does seem that Herod was affected to some degree by John's message in Mark chapter 6 and verse 20. It says, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And even even after John's death, as we're seeing this flashback here, and John and and, and Herod is thinking, this is John resurrected from the dead. This is coming from a, a fear of John. He knew that he was a just and holy man. And in his life, while John was still alive, it says that Herod protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly, it says. That's Mark chapter 6 and verse 20. So there seems to be that it seems that John's ministry was maybe having some inroad into Herod's mind, at least. He was being affected by what he was hearing There even seems to be some measure of remorse in Herod when he finally gave the word to execute John. Did you see that in verse 9 of Matthew 14? And the king was sorry. Mark says the same thing. The king was sorry. Nevertheless, I mean, if it would have said the king was sorry, which led to repentance, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, a sorrow that leads to repentance. This would have been a good thing and a good ending, but it didn't lead to that. He was sorry. He was grieved. He was upset. He was heavy. But it led to no change. It wasn't repentance. He was pressured by his wife and then the guests at his royal birthday party. Instead of humbly acknowledging his sin, Turning away from it, including renouncing his daughter's demand as unjust and not fitting the nature of a proper gift, he yields. I mean, his his oath that he gave was a rash oath, and it was a it was an unreasonable oath. And he could have even said, even though he made that oath, he could have said, "I promised you, even as Mark says, up to half my kingdom, but I didn't promise you a life." But you see, he had to say face. It says in verse 9, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. It wasn't just the oaths. It was those who sat with him and they were looking on and, uh, and he was, and he feared, he feared his peers. He feared his reputation. And so he commanded it to be given her. He yields, fearing the crowds. Verse 5, fearing his wife, 
Verse 3, it was for the sake of Herodias that he did what he did. He feared the impact upon his reputation. Verse 9, but he did not fear God. And therefore, he heaped sin upon sin, ultimately striking the prophet of God. And consequently, he carried this upon his conscience after John's death. Spurgeon said, John was written on the tyrant's memory. John's death did not silence the truth. The truth continued in Herod's mind and his conscience. He continued to be plagued by the truth. This is not lawful for you. You have taken another man's wife. And killing the messenger did not kill the truth. And so Herod was perpetually plagued by the memory of his sin. Every human being has a conscience. And every faithful preacher like John aims for it. And I could pause now and maybe give Aaron an opportunity to stand up and give experiences. That's what you're doing out there in the public space, aren't you? You're aiming for the consciences of men. And that's what every faithful preacher will do, whether it's in the context of a church setting like this or in some sort of open air setting or in some sort of private engagement with a leader like this. You remember Paul did this. Paul aimed for the conscience of those that he stood before. And Agrippa said, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. You remember that? He was aiming for their conscience. And every faithful preacher will do this. And I'm telling you, it's not always easy to do it as a preacher. Because you know the consequences. You know that people don't like their consciences stirred. People don't like to be pricked in their hearts. People don't like for sin to be pointed out, do they? We, and so we gloss over and we sugarcoat it. And, and brethren, I, I, I have the same tendency as any preacher. Then I have to guard myself and I had to pray even this morning. Don't let me fear the faces of men. Don't let me be controlled in what I say because of who's present and what I think they may think or think they may say or their opinion of me or I would be functioning under the same fear that really Herod was functioning under. But John didn't function under that fear. He feared God. Not man. But let me speak to those who are hearing the preacher. Whether it be this one or another. Or whether it be someone who comes to you with a message from God's Word. It may be a, a believing spouse. It may be a, a believing parent. Or a believing son or daughter. Or sibling. Or just a, another brother or sister in Christ. Don't ignore the message of truth that reaches your conscience. If under the faithful ministry of the Word of God, you feel the guilt of some sin in your life, don't ignore it. And don't try to silence the messenger. No. Fear God. Fear God in this sense. Be in awe of the fact that God has been faithful to you to bring somebody to actually speak into your heart and life and alarm your conscience and respond. Not simply to the messenger, but to the God who sends the messenger and the message. Don't fear man. Don't allow the pressure of family or the pressure of peers Control your response to God's message. What will he think, she think, they think? Doesn't matter. What does God see? What does he think? And if your conscience is saying to you, no, in any given situation in your life, I'm sure that in the process, Herod must have come to the place, even though at, at one point it seemed like he was wanting to put 
It says so. He was wanting to put John the Baptist to death himself, but it's almost like he got over that and he was being moved in some way. Hearing John gladly, but then the pressure got to him. What is, how is this going to affect my relationship with Herodias? She was a domineering woman. How is it going to affect my relationship with her? And you know, that affects us, doesn't it, sometimes in our, in our response, in our decision making, even though your conscience may say, don't do it. I would say to you, if your conscience is saying no to you, don't ignore your conscience. Don't heap up guilt through sinful choices that will haunt your conscience. And so if the message of the preacher or anyone confronting you with sin stings. Well, how should you react? Listen, if if the message of the messenger is God's message and it stings, that means your conscience is not seared. Humbly respond in repentance rather than ignoring or silencing the messenger, which will simply lead to more sin as we see in the passage before us. And it will lead ultimately to this weighty burden of a guilty conscience. And there is nothing more, more damaging, more destructive, more harmful than, a, than the weight of a guilty conscience. Let me just insert here. What is the solution to a guilty conscience? It's not complicated, is it? The solution to a guilty conscience is to repent of the sin that's causing the guilt. Acknowledge it and turn from it. And then listen to the rest of the message of John the Baptist. He was a preacher of repentance. He did point out sin, but what else did he point out? Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Look unto Jesus. For that full forgiveness that doesn't come because of your repentance, it comes because of Jesus Christ. Look unto Jesus and receive His absolution so that you no longer have to live with that guilty conscience. Well, a guilty conscience in an unrepentant heart, may also evidence itself as it does in Herodias in her response to being confronted by sin. And what you see in Herodias is the outworking of an angry, bitter, revengeful spirit. And I'm suggesting to you, and there are other, there are other evidences or expressions of a guilty conscience left undealt with. But we're dealing with this particular passage and how it, how it shows itself in Herodias' life. And it is in this that her heart, her unrepentant heart, was taken over by, ultimately, I think, by bitterness. But this angry, revengeful spirit that would not be satisfied. It can't be satisfied. John's message to Herod, heard by Herodias, incensed her unrepentant and darkened heart. Mark chapter 6 and verse 19. It says, verse 18 said, because John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19 says, therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she couldn't. She held it against him and wanted to kill him. Do you hear what's going on there? That's not a repentant heart. That's an unrepentant spirit who is being confronted by a particular sin. But instead of responding to the message that's come, come to your mind and to your inner being, you feel it. It stings just like it did with Herodias. But the response is rather an angry spirit. A bitter and revengeful spirit. And so Herodias was the motivation behind the cruel demand for John's imprisonment and execution. 
In verse 3 it says, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. It's like she was behind this. Now it's not that Herod was guiltless. We read in verse 5 that he wanted to put him to death, so certainly there was that in him at least initially. But Herodias seemed to be the driving force behind the death of John, the imprisonment of John, and ultimately the death of John. So his he was, it seems, wanting to please his wife. His wife was controlling. John Trapp. He's an old 17th century Puritan. And he said this. Some of those guys said things in a sentence that are loaded. And he said this. She ruled him at her pleasure as Jezebel did Ahab. But it never goes well when the hen crows. It never goes well when the hen Crows. The hen was crowing. She would not be silenced. She was going to get her way. Now, I know Herodias is an extreme example of the depths to which bitter grudge can take an unrepentant heart. But oftentimes, Scripture does paint this extreme case in order to show us the danger of it and to steer clear of it. To run from it. To repent of it. Lest it take you down a similar path. The details of Herodias' scheme accentuates the power of sin left undealt with. To stoop to such a low place as she does. And I mean, this is not a G-rated story here. Now, it's presented in sort of that way, and I'm thankful for the way in which it is presented. But this was a horrific scene. A low place that revenge takes one to the place where a person can't even see the horrific things that they're doing and can even justify it. And all of this simply because John spoke the truth. That's all John was doing was speaking the truth. And she couldn't say it wasn't so. She couldn't say you're lying. But she couldn't deal with the truth. And she couldn't just ignore him. You know, I often say to people, listen, if you don't like what I'm saying, just turn me off, tune me out. She couldn't do that. Because a heart, an unrepentant heart, that's hearing a message, especially one that John the Baptist was preaching repeatedly, it can't do that. Not when it's captivated by this spirit of unrepentance. Such is the sinful drive of an unrepentant heart. The one who threatens your way must pay. The one who threatens your way must pay. Somehow, they're going to pay. And the results are ugly. Not only affecting you, that is the one who is seeking to repay, or the one that they are repaying, in in this case, John the Baptist, but also others that are very close. In this case, Herodias' daughter. Family members. There are ripple effects to this unrepentant heart worked out. In our lives. Let me just pause here. And say a few things. Not to go into much detail. But the influence. Of an unrepentant mother. Upon her daughters especially. But her children in general. And likely she. Herodias' daughter was a teenager here. Maybe a a mid-aged teenager. But the influence is striking. This is Mother's Day. And mothers, this is something you need to think about. The influence 
of an unrepentant mother, Herodias, used her daughter to manipulate and control an outcome that she desired. And this sometimes happens where mothers do this. They even use their children to manipulate some sort of outcome. And that's coming from an unrepentant heart. Likely controlled by some sort of anger and bitterness and revengeful spirit so that you would cross the line to even use, in this case, a daughter to do illicit things to accomplish your wicked purpose. Her daughter danced, it says in verse 6, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, and this isn't birthdays like we celebrate birthdays. By the way, the Jews didn't celebrate birthdays. That's another thing. I mean, Herod wasn't, I mean, he was a Jew in name, but he wasn't a Jew, wasn't of the lineage. But he did celebrate birthdays. And he, he had a, a great, there was a, a Mark chapter 6 talks about uh, those that were, were gathered at this, this, this birthday. There was, a, there were um, heads of states and those that were of royalty. And there it is, verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. It's a big deal. And it was a drunken stupor. And, and, and Herodias knew exactly what was going on. It wasn't a place for women to go. The only reason women were there were to entertain the men. Need I say more? It was horrible. Into that. Herodias' daughter went to dance. And it wasn't a country square dance. It was a lewd dance before these drunken men. And it says that she pleased Herod. That wasn't a please like I give you a 10 out of 10 score for a good dance. It was more than that going on. Herod's base lusts, along with the other men, being satisfied by the dance of Herodias' daughter. And so he promises her. And by the way, men, this is a weakness that women can exploit. Again, there's so many trails I could go down here in this message from this passage. I'm not going down that trail except to say that is it, that if this, something like this happens to you, it's on you. You can't blame Herodias or Herodias' daughter. It's on you. But it is a weakness in men, and women can exploit that weakness, can't they? He promised her, and by the way, men, when you are in this, especially in a drunken state, but even when you are, when you are engaging in all the sexual ridiculousness, although it doesn't seem ridiculous when you're doing it, but the sexual ridiculousness of our age, your mind can get to a place where you are mindless. It's like that's where Herod was. I'll give you anything. I'll give you up to half. What kind of a promise? Up to half my... Just over a dance? Verse 8 tells us that having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And if you read Mark's account, you hear the word immediately. And now. In other words, this wasn't something that Herodias' daughter sat around and thought about. It was something that she and her mother apparently engaged with one another about. Blame placed on Herodias here. The mother baiting her daughter, misleading her daughter, controlling her daughter just as she sought to control her husband. Before he sobers up, before he comes to his senses, go ask for John's head. So she does. In verse 11, and his head was brought on a platter given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Isn't that an amazing scene? Mother got what she wanted. 
and ruined her daughter in the process. Now, again, as I've said, I know Herodias is extreme. But please learn from her not to allow an unrepentant heart to foster in you. And there are other things that it can foster, but it will always foster anger and bitterness and even revenge, especially toward one who speaks corrective truth in you to you. And you will want to go the other way. You'll want to flee. You don't want to hear it anymore. You reject the messenger in hopes of getting away from the message. Oh, mothers, let me just digress One more moment to say this. I don't know that this is digression really, and I've already mentioned it, but it's so important. Your influence is huge in your home. Not just with your daughters, but with your sons. Teach your daughters and sons well. Teach them by word. Teach them by example. Let your children see you respecting God's way. Which, by the way, includes respecting your husband. Respecting, if you're a believer, respecting those that God has put in your life as authorities within the church context. Responding to His message. And resisting the sensual, sexualized culture of our day that fixates on external appearances. This is where especially I speak to mothers and daughters. Don't groom your daughters to be attractive to the world. Don't do that. Spurgeon said this as he was commenting on this this passage. He said of his day, in these days, boy, what would he say today? In these days, mothers too often encourage their daughters in dress, which is scarcely decent, and introduce them to dances which are not commendable for purity. No good can come of this. It may please the Herods, but it displeases God. That's true. Well, Herodias got what her bitter, unrepentant heart wanted. But she didn't get what her heart needed. And she remained in bondage to her sin. My time is about up, so I'm not going to elaborate on that. But you can go and search it out for yourself the rest of her life. It didn't go well. Neither did it go well for Herod. She ended up in exile with Herod. Losing much of what her sensuous, greedy heart wanted. You see, when her brother Agrippa I got appointed king, she was jealous. Now, Herod here is called king, but it wasn't officially that. It was sort of a loose reference to him as king. He wasn't, he wasn't officially a king. He was a tetrarch, which is not a king. But she pushed him and prodded him and said, let's go to Rome before Caligula the emperor. Let's seek a kingship for you. She wanted to be queen. Her brother had become a king. And so they did. They went to Caligula. They went to Rome. And instead of getting what she wanted, she got exiled with her husband to Gaul. Gaul. That's a good word. It's actually Spain. But if you say Spain, you think, well, what's so wrong with Spain? Well, Gaul wasn't what we know as Spain now. It didn't go well for her. What good did it do for her? And what good did it do for Herod to silence the prophet? The truth was still true. Their relationship was still unlawful. And not only did they live the remainder of their days haunted by their guilty consciences in miserable exile in Spain, they will stand one day in judgment Before the risen, reigning King and Judge, Jesus Christ. And they'll stand before Him as unrepentant sinners. You don't want that. 
when God sends a stinging message of truth your way, repent. Don't think about it. Don't delay. Let not conscience make you weary. Respond. It will not change the truth to silence the messenger. And Herod and Herodias represent the ugly effects of unrepentant hearts. Don't be like them. What about John? These are really moving words to close the message here in verse 12. Then his disciples came. What a horrific end to a life, really. Head severed from your body. I don't even know if they ever ever got his head. But they got his body. It says, then his disciples came and took away the body. And they buried it. They didn't burn it. They buried it. They showed respect for the body. Right? But they loved John. And so did Jesus. And so they went and told Jesus what had happened. And the thought that occurred to me, Jesus knew, by the way, that John the Baptist was going to die. He knew that. But it still seemed to affect him. And I, I, I may be wrong here, but this is the way I initially read verse 13 when Jesus heard it. He didn't just continue on like nothing had happened. He departed from there by a boat to a deserted place by himself. Does that strike you? It's almost like, no. My forerunner, not just a forerunner, not just an official appointed person that ran before me, but my friend. I love John. I appreciated John. Now he's gone. He's gone. And of course, Jesus also knew what that meant. Within the next year, he was going to be facing Herod face to face and was going to be hanging upon a cross under a cruel death. But what about John? Brethren, his, I don't know how long he was in prison, but it was not a pleasant experience. He was a faithful messenger. Loved by his disciples and loved by Jesus. And I believe if John could stand here right now and speak to us, he would say, hey, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. I had the incredible privilege of being the forerunner of the Messiah. And yes, it was a miserable time in the dungeon, in the prison. But I'm free now. I'm free now. My head severed from my body, but I am free As someone said, John lost his head, but he gained a crown. And that headless body will one day be joined with its head, wearing that crown, which will be then cast with the rest of us, joining with John at the feet of our beloved Messiah, Jesus Christ, right? That's the story. That's the conclusion of our, that's where we're headed as followers of Jesus Christ. So we will behold the Lamb that John pointed to. We will worship and we will serve the Lamb with John and with one another with no threat ever again of any unrepentant heart responding to us like Herod and Herodias. This is the joyful hope of every sinner repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know, maybe that, I just thought about this as just a, a, a by comment. But when we're being accosted and being reacted to, um, wherever the, whatever the environment is, as we're seeking to minister the gospel, or when we're seeking to minister some truth, even a hard truth, even confrontational to someone who needs to hear it, and maybe there is that resistance, that harsh resistance, 
Keep this in mind. That's only going to happen in this lifetime. And that's it. That's it. It's coming a glorious day where we will not deal with that at all. Be faithful to the end, just like John the Baptist. Kyle, be faithful to the end. There is temptation to not be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. There's a reward waiting for you as the followers of Jesus Christ. Father, thank You for...